Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome into Tom Curran's Patriots Talk podcast. We got a mess to get into today. First off, Gerard Mayo interviewing in Philadelphia. So why Mayo? And what about Josh McDaniels? Which leads us to what is the Bill Belichick succession plan? Is he ever going to go or is he in here for the long haul? Additionally, we got my buddy Jonathan Jones from CBS Sports to give us perspective on the league in general. And Steph Stradley, good friend of mine from down in Houston, she's going to give us her perspective on what in God's name is going on with that cult in Houston. All that and more on Tom Curran's Patriots Talk podcast. All right, so you're sitting there, you go, where's my Matt Castle? Huh? Where's my Phil Perry? Okay, you know what? Get used to it. Okay, we only had Castle for a little while. That was in the season. We'll bring him back. Phil, of course, has the next Pats podcast. You want to keep an eye on that because he's going to get in deep on the draft with many draft experts. We'll get into dabbling on that as well here on the normal Patriots Talk podcast. But I want to try and turn this into maybe Tom Curran's Variety Hour. Have as many folks in from around the league guest-wise as we can. Obviously, earlier this week, we had Pat McAfee. Next week, we get some great guests lined up, and I hope you enjoyed today's guest. But I wanted to first delve into Gerard Mayo and his opportunity with the Philadelphia Eagles. I think the resounding reaction was, whoa, this guy's only been coaching two years. Why is he getting a head coaching interview? This doesn't make a lot of sense. When you think about it, though, it actually does make sense. Gerard Mayo came into the league in 2008. He was a 10th overall pick. In 2009, Bill Belichick named him the lone captain during preseason. That was a year after, or the year that, Mike Vrabel, Teddy Bruschi, Richard Seymour, Rodney Harrison all departed the defense. Bill Belichick looked at him and said, you know what? We just had three Super Bowl wins this decade. You're the guy to lead us into the next decade. He's not going to do that without a guy who's got unbelievable leadership skills that he trusts at the age of 23 to take over that kind of role. He did that. And what happened with the Patriots? Well, they weren't that great in 09. Reminder, during that season of fourth and two, when Teddy Bruschi criticized the Patriots on ESPN, it was Gerard Mayo in his second year in the league who was the touchstone for everyone in the media to have to go to and say, what's your reaction? He said, all due respect, but Teddy's not in here. He doesn't know how our team works right now. Had some balls behind that to say that. But he was right. And that kind of leadership translated into the Patriots going into the next decade with Gerard as an All-Pro in 2010, as Defensive Rookie of the Year almost unanimously in 2009, and as a Pro Bowl-level player into the next decade, leading the way. Now, injuries, as we all know, short-circuited his career. He ended up working with me. And that's why I think I can speak with some hmm, knowledge and appreciation for who he is and how friggin' smart he is. This is a guy who's got four kids. This is a guy who worked for Optum as an executive, not just cashing a check and going in there and putting his feet up on the desk, but active all over the country. Worked his ass off there. Also, meanwhile, he's an entrepreneur opening up pizza shops in different places like Washington. He's involved in community work at Boston Medical Center. I know, I know, I know. It sounds like I'm his agent. What I'm trying to express though is that when we talk, talk about guys having the opportunity to become 
head coaches. And we wonder why there's not as much diversity on the sidelines that reflects the number of players on the field who are black, 70%. Maybe teams should open their minds a little bit more to the idea that just because somebody doesn't start as a quality control assistant and then move on to secondary or linebackers coach by the time they're 25 and then do some special teams work from 27 to 28, maybe playing the game and being a leader and understanding all the things that you have to understand within your team to be a leader on a great team might be even more, more practical experience for the job of head coach. I look at Mayo, whether or not he gets this Eagles job that he's interviewing for on Friday, and it's not a great job. They are in salary cap hell and they have quarterback issues. We'll talk to Jonathan Jones about that later on, but this won't be the last interview that he has. And eventually some team's going to get themselves a tremendous, tremendous head coach in Gerard Mayo. I don't know how the team's going to do, but he's going to be a sharp guy. He'll win the press conferences too. Uh, next up, if Gerard Mayo is getting interviews, what does that mean for Josh McDaniels? And to me, McDaniels, the Patriots offensive coordinator, has been the best coordinator in the National Football League. And I know there's eye rolling on Sundays about what McDaniels calls and doesn't call and decisions made. And I understand that. But I'll point it out again. He is trying to make chicken salad out of chicken beep bleep in terms of personnel offensively. To go in 2018 from a season that began with Chris Hogan and Philip Dorsett as your starters and Cordero Patterson as your third wide receiver because Julian Edelman was down, to then have to hire Josh Gordon, who predictably didn't make it through the season, to then pivot to an offense that was ground game based and convinced Tom Brady that that was the best way to go and win a Super Bowl that year, that was pretty good. Then to come back in 2019 and to do it again without Gronk, and to go 12 and four, when everybody on the planet could tell it wasn't a real talented offense, and how many points came from gadget plays and gimmickry and formationing, it was amazing. And then in 2020, with no offseason, he pivots again to basically a high school style attack because the receivers still hadn't improved, the tight ends still hadn't improved, and now you had a quarterback who really wasn't very adept at throwing the ball and had to be given an edict. I say it wasn't officially an edict. Stop throwing it into damaging situations, please. And they still won seven games with a guy who can barely throw overhand. So other people have said, why hasn't Jarrett Stidham developed under McDaniels? Not a bad point. What then if Jimmy Garoppolo or Jacoby Brissett, both of whom came into the league and then became starters, one guy going to the Super Bowl, the other guy having almost a three-to-one TD interception rate with Indianapolis. Look, McDaniels burned himself in 2018 when he decided not to take the Colts job. Will that wound ever heal? I don't know. He's interviewed with nearly half the league by now over the course of time. Since 2015, he has sat with the Packers. He has sat with the Chargers. He sat with the Rams, sat with the Niners, sat with the Jaguars, sat obviously with the Colts. And there's about four other teams that are escaping me. Packers, did I say Packers? Oh, Cleveland. Um, and the Giants in Carolina were interested. It's a lot of teams. It's a lot of teams to have Josh say, nah, I'm going to stay here. 
And of course, the Indianapolis decision is going to be held against him. We'll get into that with Jonathan Jones as well. But perhaps the best opportunity for Josh to get that head job would be here in New England. No guarantees have ever been made that he would be the head coach in waiting. And part of me believes that Gerard Mayo might be a guy if the Patriots had to, and the Crafts had a gun put to their heads and said, who's, who's next? Mayo might be the guy that they would initially say. I'm sure he would be in the running. But when is Bill going to be done? He'll be 69 in April. Right now, the team's not real good. They don't have an answer at quarterback. They have an incredible amount of cap space. Bill is primed to recreate something. Not going to be in 2021 alone, I don't think. And I don't think he'd walk away in 2022 either. So we got a guy who might coach until he's 72 at least, 73 years old. Will McDaniels be here through all that time? Will Mayo? It's fascinating. We know Bill Belichick's salary to a little extent right now. But we do not know how long he's going to coach. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. All right, we're going to pivot now and start to talk about all of the coaching hires and coaching vacancies and what we see for this weekend's landscape with our buddy Jonathan Jones. All right, I'm fired up to bring in a friend of mine who I've met in press boxes over the years. I love his writing. I love his perspective on things. He covers the league and does a bang-up job of it. It's a guy whose name you want to know going forward. It's Jonathan Jones from CBS Sports. And Jonathan, where are you? I'm in uh, lovely Stamford, Connecticut, living life, man. Why are you in Stamford? Because I know you're a Carolina guy. Yeah, I am uh, based in Charlotte, but up here, wanted to avoid the... um, uh the the back and forth yep. and the travel restrictions and whatnot so we have a studio here in stanford we have a studio in new york so it made the most sense well we got a we got a studio too in stanford our, our, we're your rivals here at nbc and you get yours so this is good but this is nice to have some interplay it's always good keep your friends close keep your enemies closer that's <laughs> why you're here uh what do you make of the urban meyer hire in jacksonville um money Makes a lot of sense, right? Uh, you, you have relevancy uh, immediately. This is this is going to make the Jags more relevant immediately than their 2017 AFC title game run, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I get it. You, you, you sell tickets, you sell luxury suites, you try to work with city government who has been blocking you on some of your bigger yes. developments like the entertainment district because it's easier to sell a team, right, that has Urban Meyer and Trevor Lawrence than a team that's been picking in the top 10, 13 of the last 14 years. What a blessing that the New York Jets took out the Rams, huh? I mean, oh. can you even imagine when you trace that stuff back? Like if they don't have the number one, is Urban Meyer still coming or is he going to hold you up for more dough? I, I don't think he I don't think he comes there because Trevor Lawrence is just such a franchise changer and that's no disrespect to a Justin Fields or anybody else, but Trevor Lawrence is the difference maker. Think about that. 
that one win by the Jets, that game over the course of all the, whatever they call it, 256 game season, might have been the biggest game of the year so far. That was it. And, um, and, and so what did you get for it, Jets? I don't know. I would have tanked. 100%. And that's what you end up once the season ends and everybody's packed their stuff into their bags and headed home, Jonathan. That's It's exactly what starts to dawn on everyone once they get out of the football mindset. Why did we do that? <laughs> yeah. We're not I mean, looking sure the eighth instead of second or whatever. Yeah, the players, I'm sure, loved it. And I, and I got it. You know, Frank Gore, uh, you know, he won that game and then won the last game. And that, that's great for him. But as an organization, I would have made sure that we did not win. Plenty of other openings right now that have yet to be filled. And there's plenty of names mixing through. The Eagles, first the Doug Peterson firing. Troy Aikman said um, on a Michael Irvin podcast that really it came down to Peterson when it hurts and Lurie when it wins. And that's that huge tab that you have at quarterback where you have to, as an owner, you're like, I got an asset here. I can't leave it in the frigging garage. So is that your understanding as well? And then I want to ask you about Gerard Mayo. Yeah, that's that's what makes sense. Um, because listen, I, I was listening to that Jeffrey Lurie press conference and he, he was talking out of both sides of his mouth and talking about the long-term vision and the short-term vision. And we believed in a window, uh, but our personnel was off. But Howie Roseman's fine. And mm -hmm. the, the fact is, Doug Peterson didn't forget how to coach. He's, he's still a, a great coach. The only time that he looked like he didn't know how to coach was when he was hanging on to Carson Wentz for 100%. a game or two too long. That's the only time in the past three or four years that Doug Peterson has looked like a coach who doesn't know what he's doing was when he was trying to hang on to the quarterback that the owner had already paid all that money to. When we look at the Eagles now, that opportunity which opened up this week, Gerard Mayo is in the mix. He's going to be interviewed on Friday. My understanding is that it's a head coaching job that he is going to leave for he's not going to go and be a defensive coordinator for someone they have an opening there as well with Jim Schwartz having gone on Gerard's only been two years in the business uh, of coaching with the title but how would you pinpoint Mayo's star in the NFL galaxy it, it, it sort just, of just, kind of just appeared <laughs> yeah just it happened right and it was like two weeks ago that it that it finally comes up and we're like oh I mean, yeah, I could see it, but it is still a little bit early, right? And you still want, um, you know, a little bit of hair on your coaching chest, right? Now, I say that, and Joe Brady, who's 31 years old, who was just a grad assistant in college not that long ago, may very well be a head coach by the time that this airs, right? And so um, I do think that Gerard Mayo's time will come. I would be a little surprised if it happens now. And frankly, I don't think that the Philadelphia Eagles job is a good no. job. That is a perspective that I've also got in terms of cap space, in terms of the absolutely combustible situation with the quarterbacks. But I know that you've written about the diversity and the, the need to make sure that more guys are sitting down with more owners. And only because I'm, I'm close with Mayo. He actually, he and I co-hosted a television show for about 10 years. It really brought home to me something important that I think people miss this isn't to push back on you, but it's just to look at it through a different perspective. Even though his star just appeared on the horizon, and even though he's new, you got a guy who was drafted 10th overall in 2008. By 2009, he was a Patriots team captain and had taken over the leadership role for Brewski and Vrabel and Seymour and helped that team move into its 2.0 version of its dynasty. He was a captain for seven straight years. 
he when he left football, he was actually an executive with Optum, which okay. is so he has business acumen. He's got leadership acumen. I watched him in the locker room and everybody can't say this, but they didn't see it. But him tutoring fellow players in the locker room and being the brains of that defense. So I look at a Joe Brady and say, Joe Brady doesn't uh, I don't care how long he coached this guy who played football until 30 or 31 has way more experience that's actually underappreciated than the, let's be frank about it, predominantly white guys who get those quality control jobs because their football career is over. Yep, that's absolutely right. And I'll tell you this, this week I had a, a coach uh, reach out to me who said, and, and he used very colorful language, but he said, what kind of slap in the face would it be if Joe Brady gets a job and all these other guys, and we understand where he's going with that. I had another uh, I had a black uh, personnel executive text me um, yesterday who said, listen, I'm not even surprised by the Joe Brady thing because it happens every year. Mm -hmm. and, and he said, quote, at least he's more qualified than Zach Taylor was when he got his job with the Bengals. And so I, I, I see it from both sides where it's like, yeah, this is this is what always happens. And then it's also folks who are still trying to come to grips with it. And that says nothing about really Joe Brady so much as it says about the system and all that. But to your point about Mayo, yeah, it, it, he has all of that fantastic experience stuff that you cannot replicate or duplicate anywhere else. It's just like him or anyone else. Mm -hmm. Would you have that in that situation that you're going to be faced with, with as a head coach? Uh, when something comes up in the locker room where uh, if an agent and the, and the player's dad are involved too much, how are you going to deal with that? There are a couple of several things that just pop up that you how do you build your staff? If you've been a player all that time, how do you build your staff? Are you going to build it with your buddies or are you going to build it because and not or are you going to build it with I know this guy, he's unbelievable on spreadsheets and cutting up. And how do they know that? I mean, Mayo does because of his. Some guys that might be brilliant football minds coming out, but they don't know videographers. They don't know cut-ups. Of course they do. I'm overstating it, but. No, but you're right. I mean. The technical we're, we're, shit that has to go with it, it's foreign to them. And it's, it's, it's the same across all professions, right? You couldn't do what you're doing now 20 years ago. I couldn't be in the position that I'm in right now eight years ago. You got to learn along the way. And I, I would certainly think that a guy like Mayo, and you talk about all of his bona fides, I think that he is better positioned to make that jump into a head coach than a guy like Joe Brady, who, you know, frankly, has had like two years of even knowing how to answer questions in a press conference. Oh, my God. And Mayo in a press conference setting, I'm telling you. Um, has Josh McDaniels' star passed across our horizon and now to the other side because of all the time he spent – to mix a metaphor on the high board, looking at the water and not jumping. <laughs> well, or, or that time that he jumped and then somehow never hit the water in Indianapolis. He grabbed a rope. When he, did. Right. he did a wily e. coyote or a, he grabbed a branch. I, I, I think, I think that that ultimately is, I'm not going to say that he'll never get a, a head coaching opportunity, but I'm not surprised that his name's been on a lot of lists there at the end of December. And then once you get into January, it's like, well, what about Josh McDaniels? You do that to the Colts after what had happened with the Broncos. And yeah, there's going to be a lot of trepidation on the parts of NFL team owners who say, I, is he, what's going to happen here? And fool me once, fool me twice. This would be fool me three times. Yeah. I mean, the Denver one, so young, 33. 
it's it's really uh it's fascinating when you look at the machinations the patriots engaged in in 2017 early 2018 to make sure that he stayed and you know bill's going to be 69 in april and he's no closer to retirement and so far josh has as i talked about at the top of the pod had opportunities to sit with the packers with matt lafleur lafleur was getting that job and then last year he had opportunities in carolina that went away before he sat and the giants went away before he sat and then stefanski was really the first pick there so it's it's interesting isn't it because there to me john there is no better coordinator in the league and what he did with cam this year pivoting to that was kind of evidence i i completely agree and again but that goes to just like as we talk about um a joe brady and again he's he's kind of the fulcrum of, of an argument fair unfair to him just but for just, our listeners joe brady's lsu dude just give him a quick skinny on joe yeah he was the passing game coordinator for lsu when they had the best offense in college football history and then of course he's been the offensive coordinator for the carolina panthers for this past season where they faltered down the stretch some mm-hmm. of it was teddy bridgewater some of it was coaching and other things but you know, you can be a fantastic play caller and not have other elements. And Josh McDaniels, who is one of the most fantastic coordinators, offensive, defensive, or whatever in the entire league, but if you don't necessarily, if, if, if owners, again, have trepidation, again, the word, that you're going to be able to lead their program in the correct way, then maybe they're going to have, maybe this is what happens. Can't blame them. I mean, you can't, it's such a massive investment. And then you go through all the shit trying to put the interviews together and you sit there and you're ready to have, I mean, what Josh did justifiable as, as it was at that time in, in his mind for his family and all the other, that was, and we said it at the time, all of us did. Sure. Right. This isn't, this isn't hindsight, right? Yeah. So, but you mentioned, and before we get to Cam, you mentioned Belichick and how he's not all that close to retiring. The, the idea is that he's he's got a catch sure, right? Like it, it, he's not retiring until it catches that that number. You know, I've often thought that those things didn't matter to him. The, the, but the I think great maybe when you historian Bill Belichick, when you see it in no, I know, but like I'm not going to stay and just hammer my head against the wall to do that. But I think once it's in sight, and you're like, I can do this. The work of coaching with my kids, I think it would be an an all an ulterior motive beyond the primary ones. Coaching with my kids. I'm not going to leave this place so that people can say I left it a mess. Yeah. So I'm thinking at least two or three more seasons, at least. Um, but what did you think of the cam experience from afar? It went about like how I expected. Um, he started a lot hotter. And you covered than- him. I should preface that, folks, by saying that, that Jonathan covered cam for how long? Yeah, no, from 2012 to through the Super Bowl year with the Carolina Panthers, I covered the Panthers with Joe Person at the Charlotte Observer um, for, for four or five seasons. And, you know, I, I thought that Cam started a lot hotter than I was expecting. Mm-hmm. But there was that talk, right, Tom, in week three or four. It was like, got to extend Cam, got to pay him more money. He's the guy. And I've been saying ever since he, he uh, signed with the Patriots, and that news came out just as I started vacation over the summer. But as soon as he signed, I said, listen, it's not about how he's spinning the ball in training camp because he's basically had a year and a half off of football. It's going to be about how he's throwing the football in November and December. As the, as the months get colder, as the hits accumulate, as just simply the reps on the arm add up, what is that shoulder going to look like? And ultimately, at the end of the season, he said, listen, I didn't really have any problems with the shoulder or the foot. Well, 
you know, he was dribbling some passes there. 100%. So I don't, maybe his arm wasn't falling off. Maybe he still had feeling in his arm, you know, whatever it is. But his arm clearly limited him, and it's, it began limiting him even more as the season wore on. Yeah, it's probably almost subconsciously. It's so mangled in there that, yeah, I was throwing fine. You're throwing fine for 2020, Cam. But if you looked at yourself throwing right now, back in 2013, say, my God, what yep. happened to me? Will he ever be a starter in the NFL again? A not a uh, a um, a week one starter, like right? Yeah, right. Anointed, an anointed starter. That's, That's right. Um, I it's, it's hard for me to think that in 2021 he will be a week one starter. The only place that it's really possible is Washington right now, mm-hmm. right? Uh, outside of that, you play the musical chairs game, and it's very similar to what we just saw last summer with the Patriots. Like uh, the music stops, and there's only one chair left, and there's Cam. Um, so Cam has a decision to make whether he can go into Washington and try to win that job, or he can, and I use this term, you know, humble himself in a way that he has humbled himself this season, winning the media good guy award up there. Love he to see a, that. He was great. Well, I can tell you, he would have never won the media good guy award in Charlotte. It was um, wild. Yeah. So, so he turned the corner there and that was great to see. Um, but if he, he could go to a Houston and be Deshaun Watson's backup and understudy and mentor, if he wants to transition into that role, but that's going to, that's going to take Cam deciding for himself that that's where his career is going. And mm. I don't know if he's there yet, but I think that all of us who watched from the outside would say, hey, this is a guy who's probably not an anointed week one starter going forward. Here's what is, what's also interesting as we look forward to this. And it just occurred to me, he's not going to go anywhere for less than what Marcus Mariota went for as a backup in Oakland, Las Vegas. And that was seven and a half million. So what team's going to say, all right, let's give Cam two and 18 to sit here in case the poop hits the fan. Well, and that's the thing is that with the lower salary cap, right? It's the market forces may be a play where you can look at a Mariota and say, yeah, I want that money. But then you can, everybody else will say, okay, we'll look at Jameis and the contract he got in New Orleans. And, you know, what was it again? Not good. It it was one point something million for a year, you know, but, and obviously Cam has an MVP to his name and all that stuff. It's, it's been a while. It's been five years. Uh, and, and we've seen his play since then. So I don't know. And he even said a couple of months ago, he's like, listen, it's not necessarily about the money for me at this point. I got plenty of money. He's mm-hmm. right. He has plenty of money. So I don't know if that will hold him back. Again, it's all in his head about if he can see himself in the position where he's the number two and maybe he gets a shot at one. Yeah. Um, well, good stuff there. Let's just real quick before we let you go, uh, hit you on this weekend's matchups. Do you see any? upsets in the mix of course we got rams packers um we have bucks saints of course ravens bills and browns chiefs i think the ravens can beat the bills uh because the bills rushing defense faltered there against the colts there in the fourth quarter they gave up three runs of 20 or more yards in the fourth quarter now you're going up against the best rushing offense in the league and really in the last couple of years in the league um so that's a possibility the the other one is the bucks I do think that the Bucs can pull it off. Brady is throwing the deep ball a lot better. Uh, they're protecting him better. It just those things. And I just don't really trust Drew Brees pushing that ball down the field. So hard to beat a team three times and Brady in a dome. I know what happened when they played there um, earlier this year. One, 
but 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 that's the other thing. Who cares what happened in week one when Brady was 100%. throwing to those guys at the private Christian school in Tampa, just trying to get reps in with them? I, the week one game doesn't even matter to me. Brady no. in a don't and the second game that ass beaten. Honest yeah. to God, that got out of control on them. They went three and out, touchdown, three and out, touchdown, three and out, touchdown. Now what? And you know what happened? The Bucks were awful on second down. They were one of the best second down teams, the third best second down team in the NFL all season. In that game, they were the third worst in the NFL on second down. So make third more manageable, and you're going to be able to be in that game earlier on. It's funny because that was a game, and I had watched plenty of Bucks games because I have the, <laughs> the interest. Um, that was the first game. I, I could actually look back, but I didn't where I saw more first down throws than any, and he wasn't hitting them. He yeah. was just missing them. So now you're in second and 10. Okay. Now we'll do that idiotic as every team does draw. Yep. <laughs> now it's third and nine. Okay. Get the punting unit. Yep. Um, and that was the beginning of him forgetting how to throw the football down the field, right? He hit that lull in the middle of the season. Yes. Now he's gotten it back. That to me is the biggest thing is when you are a Patriot, you take the field at any position, quarterback, especially knowing my coach has it. The defense has got it. I'm not going to worry. But when you take the field and you have stress about those other things and you're not on fire, yep. that's when we've seen over the years, Tom Brady tighten a little bit early in the game. That first quarter against the Saints is, is massive. They can do fine in quarters two through four. Just don't get yourself a huge stagger to try and make up later. Um, Finally, aside from those two upsets, are you looking basically at a Chiefs who Super Bowl? Chiefs Packers. Um, love the home field advantage for the Packers. Love the way that the offense obviously is playing for the Packers, but then you you have a defense that seems to be getting better. Um, the, I mean, it just I know it's chalk and all that stuff, but I'll tell you this: I'm 100%. not picking against the Chiefs. I mean, there's <laughs> why would you pick against the Chiefs? People Most unlikely. Most unlikely Super Bowl has to be Browns Rams, right? Um, that would suck. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, that would be terrible. Please no. All these eight teams and all these quarterbacks. If we end up with Browns Rams, <laughs> I beg you no, no. But listen, I'll, I'll leave you this. People talk about the Chiefs and how down the stretch, hey, you know, they were winning some tight games and they weren't crushing teams. Well, first of all, we have an impossibly high bar for the Chiefs and Patrick Mahomes, right? He's just going to be the runner-up for MVP. But then also the fact is that they went to Vegas, that they went to Tampa, that they went to New Orleans. I think they, they went down to Miami and a, and a casual NFL fan, either one of us, real NFL observers would say, all right, go three and one in that stretch. They went four and oh. So I don't care that they won by three or four points. You, you're not going to beat them. They went four and oh. All right. Uh, John, Nathan, uh, nice. JJ, my guy, how do we find you on Twitter? Yeah, on Twitter, at jjones9, and then uh, on Sunday mornings on uh, that other pregame show on CBS Sports Network. Oh, they can they can go watch that. It's not until later that we're on. There you go. Them right. uh, thank you so much. I, I'd love to do this again. Let's do it, Tom. I appreciate you. All right. We really appreciate Jonathan Jones. Let's pivot now to what's going on down in Houston, where Nick Casario, as you know, has been hired as GM, and Deshaun Watson, not happy with the landscape, of course, Earlier this week, Andre Johnson, Texans legend, tweeted out that if he were Deshaun Watson, he would stand his ground and nothing as good has happened since Jack Easterby washed ashore in Houston and slowly collected power. Jack Easterby, of course, former Patriots character coach and team chaplain, now basically running the Texans franchise. Here's Steph. 
Now, I want to bring in my friend, Stephanie Stradley, and we got to know Stephanie during the Deflategate imbroglio. She is an attorney. You can find her work in the Houston Chronicle often. And she was just so attuned to so many of the different things that were going on during Deflategate that we developed a friendship. And that friendship resurfaces <laughs> now as the ongoing Patriots in, uh, coup in Houston <laughs> continues. How are you, my friend? I am well, as, as well as anybody can be. In these, uh, in these times. In these unprecedented times. You have, I think, throughout this process of the Bill O'Brien, then to Jack Easterby era, now on to Nick Casario, been a very straight shooter and looked at it with a very skeptical eye and with good reason, given the direction of the Houston Texans. How bad is it right now? It's as bad as it could be when it doesn't need to be, I guess mm -hmm. is the, the deal. You know, like with the things that I did with Deflategate, it's the things that I normally do. Like I look at kind of crisis management. What is the situation? Why is it the way it is? And how do you fix it, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm kind of approaching the same thing, you know, this the same way. And, and really, I don't think that the issues that the Texans have right now or the fans and the players is necessarily about Nick Casario. I mean, objectively, most fan bases would be ecstatic to get somebody with his background. I mean, you know, he's had a lot of experience all mm -hmm. within the Patriot system. But I think the way that they introduced him and the context of what's going on is just basically asking for the building to leak more information out because, you know, just because I might trust you and I might like you, you have to give reasons why people should trust and believe in someone. So, and, and so right now, the biggest issue in Houston, Texas is that nobody trusts Jack Easterby, that they think that he's the new owner. Okay. And, and is running things. So Jack Easterby really hired at the behest of Bill O'Brien. O'Brien gets fired. Easterby rises to a level of general manager, operator, everything, chief cook and bottle washer. And then they went through a very public process of denying his involvement which was undercut. Well, I think in the Cal yeah. McNair, look, he's not the GM, he's not doing it. But yeah, then yeah. in the hiring of Casario, which went outside the recommendations of the Corn Ferry Consulting Firm, accurate, I think. Um, Casario now has the stain on him of being- A jack guy. Right. I mean, I think the biggest thing is everything went bad at the moment that they fired Brian Gain because whatever you thought about his work, he did have a background as a GM. And Brian and, Gain was the GM there. Yes. And he had right, a and very, then within very, short, very short period of time. And then- Was Jack was, behind that? What I- what I understand is that it was Cal McNair's decision, but okay. I think part of that was the idea that he was going to be able to get Nick Casario and that just did not happen. And so with that failure, the introduction to the Jack Easterby era was he, he botched that particular attempt at hiring. 
And then they had this awful thing called a GM by committee. And it was O'Brien, it was Easterby, it was some other people within the organization. And then the following year, they named Bill O'Brien as the GM. Now he was the most reluctant person to be named that. Like every time that you asked him about his GM role, he goes, oh, this, you know, we work together, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But it was my understanding that, that Cal wanted somebody responsible. And I think Easterby wanted somebody to be named responsible. Now, going back, this was absurd. Nobody runs their organization like this. I mean, that, and so that is where the basis of all the skepticism is. When Andre Johnson, one of the quietest players, and he was a quiet, you know, quiet wide receiver in the diva wide receiver era. When he comes out and he says, you know, everything bad happened since Jack Easterby showed up in the building, that's not hyperbole. Everything bad, the roster problems that they have now, and really it's beyond that. It's, it's more, no, like there was a huge Sports Illustrated article where three people were quoted as saying 85 to 90% of the people in the building don't trust him. Well, that's a mm -hmm. terrible thing for somebody who's a character coach. 100%. Is this really a refutation of the decision-making process and the way that it is being kind of ramrodded through by Jack without the consent or see, that's the Pandora's box that they've opened. They never should have opened the Pandora's box of allowing players to think that they would have uh, a level of input. And well, I mean, that's not even, yeah. I mean, I think part of that is that kind of betrayal, but I think it's a bigger picture. Mm -hmm. thing. Like they let us know like ahead of time that, you know, they were, they were bringing corn fairy in, which, you know, some people had questions about that, that, you know, Consulting corn, fairy, corn fairy would only, you know, accept corn fairy guys. Right. And, and so he said, you know, Cal McNair said my, you know, we're bringing these people in. We are consulting with various smart guys in the league. And, but at the end of the day, it's our decision and we're going to do what we think is right for the Houston Texans. And in mm -hmm. some ways, the new culture is almost like creating unnecessary problems so that you can overcome them. <laughs> and, and I think that, I think, I think Cal McNair underestimates the pain and hurt that came from wasting people's careers for two years of having no real GM. Mm -hmm. And then once O'Brien was out of the building, um, it even got, it got even like there was less direction. And then, you know, halfway through the season, the very well-respected PR person that the players respected, she was fired for culture reasons, mm -hmm. which were never, never really accepted. I mean, she was a highly well-respected person. So, I mean, in some ways, the concern, at least from fans and I understand staffers and players is that the Texans are a cult. No, I mean, I'm not even, I'm not even joking. It's that bad. And that, and that when Nick Casario was introduced, right, he said that Jack is a friend of him and is very important to him. He also said that, you know, his drive is 
team before self. Well, that's a really hard message to hear when you know somebody like Deshaun Watson broke a record for the amount of offense going through him that he, he had to talk about the GM position being a distraction. Like we're not talking about the media, we're not talking about some event, that the GM situation, you know, he had to put that out of his mind as mm-hmm. a distraction. You know, JJ Watt, you know, wasted another year of his career. And so it's hard to hear the message to put, you know, team before so self. That's what they've been doing. Why is, why is, do you regard it as a cult as well? If you do, <sighs> because there's one brain, one mindset that's overtaken the, the group and the leadership and the, yeah, I mean, in line with that. Yeah. When everybody is, when, when you have the kind of article that came out in Sports Illustrating saying this guy who doesn't have any extraordinary skills, this guy is a problem. And then you're putting his interests ahead of everyone else in the building, ahead of fans, ahead of staffers. What else is that? I mean, mm-hmm. what else is that? Does and, the political and Nick, is, and Nick Casario said in his presser his, that Jack Easterby's role is not defined, but he will have an important role in the organization. Now you put that <clears throat> you put that message out there, and I am telling you, it's going to get uglier before it gets better. Because right now the lack of trust going down, like Cal McNair oh. might trust these people, but the level of trust going down is. Nobody trusts anything. How much does the political or social justice bent of the McNairs and the conservatism, not to get too, too political, but how much does that enter into things with players who might be of a different bent and feel as if it's okay if it's not overt, but feel as if it may be overt? You know, I don't think that that is the biggest driver of things like I do see things that the Texans have done in that regard uh Cal McNair did a series with his mother with various people talking about social justice issues but isn't that just window dressing if you can't even bring Eric Bieniemy in for an interview until it's at the point of a bayonet well I don't I don't know that you know I I I'm not going to fully trust some of the reporting on that. I do think that that is may not be a social justice issue. I mean, I think, you know, all coaching candidates have pluses and minuses. Mm-hmm. And one of the minuses, I mean, if we're being very honest, is some of the issues that Eric Bieniemy had earlier in his career. And what does that mean in terms of his personal character? Mm-hmm. Now, I, I don't have any particular insight in that, you know, um, but, and, and I, you know, it, it sounds like they do want to bring him in. I think that Nick Casario's reputation is that he wants to, you know. I think that when we talk about the but he, brought it, he was brought in after the window to be able to even talk to Eric the enemy was sure. closed. It's funny. It's just the litmus tests that seem to be being applied on a regular basis by the Houston Texans fly in the face of what most organizations are currently at least even trying to appear to be doing, whether it's Amy Palsic, whether it's the dismissal of uh, or the references to baby mamas with 
Deshaun Watson that rubbed him the wrong way, apparently, excuse me, um, DeAndre Hopkins that rubbed him the wrong way, or citing incidents that Eric Bieniemy was involved in uh, in the late 80s or early no, 90s. I, no, and I don't. I, I know, know you don't. I know you don't, but I I'm don't just saying that, that you, you alluded to bigger... it, so I'm bringing a higher level of clarity to that. These are litmus tests that are being applied to individuals who players in that locker room have a, an affinity for, Amy Palsic. Oh, okay. no, not just an affinity for. I mean, she did amazing work. I mean, the amount of attention that, let's say, a J.J. Watt gets, she ran a ton of interference for them, or for, for all of the players, and, and tried to make it so that they could focus on football and not so much on other things. I think the bigger issue is not necessarily the conservatism or any of that. I think it's kind of the paternalism that is sensed when it feels like Jack Easterby is in the ear of the owner. And so that means the only players and coaches that you can get are okay with somebody that influential being in his ear. And that is, that is hard because the biggest issue for the Houston Texans over the years has not been bad character players or selfish players. The biggest mm -hmm. issue is they haven't had from top to bottom, the high quality football people that you need in order to pick and develop players. And I have to say, I mean, and this is the thing that blows me away the most, is some of the people that I have talked to who are most angry about the situation are people who say that like very devout Christians who are upset with how <clears throat> Jack Easterby is putting his vision, you know, it's one thing if Jack, <clears throat> sorry about this, if it's Jack okay. Easterby has a personal relationship with somebody and they trust him, right? It's another thing to tell grown ass adults how they're supposed to live their lives. And like this, I mean, this is the best comment that I got from somebody who is a pastor, who's also a Texan fan. And it's just, we had a conversation about how the people have been hurt by people who identify as religious people and have hurt hurt people and has caused trauma to those people. And this is a situation like that. Mm -hmm. You know, he is a very religious person and I know he, Jack Easterby intends 100%. well. But if you hurt people and you don't acknowledge that hurt, it's really hard to move on from that. So Jack's laudable ends don't necessarily justify the means of all the things that he is ram again ramrodding through oh yeah i mean this i mean this is what a pastor wrote me a pastor and he's saying there are many hurt young people out there because religion has told them how wrong they are they need hugs listening ears and a good example to follow for the texans you cannot hire all character culture players you have to start with their talent playmaking ability and then let your personal culture and integrity touch them through your mm -hmm. example. You can't make people fit into your mold. You have to live it out and invite others to walk alongside you. It's called lighting, letting your light shine. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, I think people feel like, you know, the, the Texans only want robots and the robots that are okay with Jack Easterby and that, and, until yeah. those issues are resolved, you're gonna, it's gonna get a lot uglier and 
a whole bunch more things will leak because people don't want to, you know, and if you know, the NFL code of keeping things in the house. Yeah. Right? And I think when you look at the Patriots, they have certainly made an effort to hire high character guys. And that's really the, the interesting intersection of those two issues is okay. Because somebody wasn't a team captain and maybe got arrested for weed as a senior in high school or got kicked off a team or didn't show. Does that mean he's a low character guy? Is he oh, radioactive now? It's even beyond that in for the Texans. The Texans. Well, I mean, we watched. We've watched it up here. So I mean, yeah. I, no, no, it's, they, they, they it's won even, nothing but team captains and and yeah. certainly the Aaron Hernandez situation, which Jack Easterby joined the team in the wake yeah. of, um, was a serious wake up call for the organization. But this team is populated to our great good fortune as a community up here by unbelievable men, Nick Casario being one of them. Um, Bill O'Brien having been one of them, you know, I, but it's, it's really fascinating to watch play out in 45 seconds or so. Tell me what happens next. You say it's going to get uglier. No, it's going to get uglier. If, if people have unresolved concerns and hurt and those aren't dealt with, and you're just told, trust us and move on. And the past is behind us, which is basically, if you look at Jack Easterby's Twitter feed, that's what it says. If that happens, more stuff's going to leak out. There's going to be more antidotes. There's going to be more things that are coming out and it's going to be ugly before it gets better. Is it salvageable with Deshaun Watson and JJ Watt? Or do you think oh, there could be seismic moves? I think so. But the easiest way to salvage all of that is to say, you know, I've had a great time in Houston. I'm resigning. That's what Jack's, Jack Easterby needs to do. Like wow. that's the only, like the hurt is that bad. I have no idea how they resolve that. It's amazing too, because all the work he has done to collect all that power and have his vision come to fruition. Steph Stradley, you can find her at Steph Stradley. She's a great friend of ours and we've appreciated so much her insight on all things Texans right now. We'll probably circle back with you again as this weirdness unfolds. (laughs) Did you miss Matt, guys? Huh? Did you miss Phil? I did too. You got a lot of Tom in this one, but I hope you enjoyed it. Please leave a comment. Make sure that you subscribe if you don't already. We appreciate having you. And we're going to keep doing this. We'll be back at you on Tuesday with uh, the Senators back in. And we'll talk more Patriots talk on the Patriots Talk Talk. Goodbye.